Welcome to Reeling from Religion. I'm your host, Kyla Thorne. Reeling is defined as to lose one's balance and stagger or lurch violently. Can you relate? Here on Reeling from Religion, we're sharing our stories of religious trauma and spiritual abuse. I invite you to listen in on the days you need to feel a little less alone and crazy. We're in this together. Today in episode three, I wrap up what I'll be sharing of my story in this format. I broke away from what I see now as an oppressive religious belief system quite accidentally. I never meant to leave it, yet here I am now over 11 years later. From being in the ministry and seeing that as my lifelong mission, to no longer identifying as religious today. I don't expect what I share today to make sense of that transition for my friends who don't have a similar story themselves, but I'm hoping as usual to help my religious trauma buddies feel a little less alone and crazy. I wish to remind you that this is my purpose in sharing and that I do not wish to imply what anyone should believe, but simply rather where I am at in this moment and what is currently working for me. pretty sure he was wearing a plaid shirt and had his hair combed to the side. He was my kid brother's friend. All I knew about him was that he and my brother were, quote, double trouble. You know, serious offenses like not driving like a grandma on the sandy driveways of the camp we were staying at and enjoying music more lively than lullabies or doll hymns. And I knew he was a kid compared to me. 16, I think? My teacher, classmates, and I were at the SDRM church camp meeting promoting the newly opened missionary school. Several months later, at a camp meeting in another state, I'd see him again. And this time he had questions for me as I worked in recruiting for the missionary school. Of course, I did my job and supported him through the missionary school application and acceptance process. Our stay at the missionary school would overlap just slightly before my move several states away to become a Bible worker and call porter department leader. But we'd see each other again on several occasions since the missionary school students participated in the call porter training programs I ran in some of the different states in my jurisdiction. Somehow, I don't remember exactly when, we started chatting on the phone. I think it had something to do with supporting him in his homework. During our phone calls, he would also update me on what was going on at missionary school. And it was disappointing. I was passionate about the missionary school. It had helped me feel more secure in my beliefs, having, quote, an answer for the hope within me, end quote. Also known as having a rebuttal Bible and spirit of prophecy study for pretty much every objection that could be thrown at us. I had taught classes the first two years of the school. I had been in the first graduating class. I still remember, embarrassingly, my passionate graduation speech. I had worked in recruiting and was now a member of the board of trustees for the school. There had been a forced change in leadership at the school and things were going downhill. The students weren't getting the experience I had had and loved. 
the experience I essentially promised them when I recruited them. At the next, of course, predominantly male-attended trustees meeting, I stood to speak in behalf of the students. I was told by the high-up brother in the general conference of the denomination who was chairing the meeting that I was being motherly. What I had to say was shut down. It was misguided. I was shut up. I sat down. The school completely fell apart months later. The students I had recruited left severely disappointed. The school I had essentially helped start was over. The first time I recall feeling angry in my adult life, in my entire life actually, was when I got the news that the church project I had headed with a few of my friends had been taken to the ministerial committee of the church, the general conference leadership of the entire denomination. We had started an initiative in the church called Arise, which stood for an army of reformers initiating a standard of excellence. Something like that anyway. The purpose of our project was to challenge us to hold up the truth in our lives, to be excellent, to be faithful. Wasn't this the embodiment of the Seventh-day Adventist reform movement? We launched the project with its own annual conference. But apparently, we hadn't gotten permission from the right people to do this project. Apparently, we hadn't asked. Apparently, we needed permission from the church. Apparently, they were threatened by us enough to take us to the ministerial committee of the Worldwide General Conference of the entire denomination. They needed to figure out how they were going to deal with us. It's weird to think that at the age of 23, I think it was, this feeling of anger felt brand new. I went out and pulled weeds from the flower bed of the duplex I rented near beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. Up until now, I had internalized the criticism and correction I was accustomed to as a, quote, wretched human being, end quote. But something in me switched, and something about this felt suddenly wrong. Something was wrong with a group of zealous young people working for God, being attacked by the leadership of the church, especially since some of these had previously shown their support. It felt like a punch to the gut. But I would recover quickly from my anger and return to my passive, internalizing the responsibility ways. Months or years later, I would even email the high-up brother in the general conference that chaired the board of trustees meeting I mentioned earlier with an apology. Like, what the heck? What was I thinking? My constant apologetic groveling behavior just angers me now. I know I was groomed for it, and I know it's a nervous system state, a piece, but who was that girl? It was around this time I found myself in a cardiologist's office because my friends and family were concerned about the heart palpitations and lethargy I had started complaining about. My heart was fine. My best friend at the time and I went ahead with our plans to move to another state where there was no Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement church and do a church plant. Despite the flack we had gotten from leadership in the church for the Arise project we were doing, we were passionate about what we believed in and felt like this was the next right step 
in promoting the church and winning souls for getting stars in our crown. Two and a half months into life in a new state with, of course, a new lease and new utilities, I realized I couldn't. My, quote, heart problems had blossomed into anxiety and panic attacks. We were still being attacked for the Arise project, but I was kind of numb to it. I couldn't get why my best friend was so upset by it. I remember myself being kind of unfazed as I'd hear the ongoing news and ministers unhappy with us. Apparently, my body couldn't handle anymore and I had shut down. I'd become numb to it, maybe? My body spoke through anxiety and panic attacks, but I didn't understand its language. By this time, my brother's friend and I had become close. He'd gone from being my brother's friend to one of my students to feeling like a brother to my best friend and a huge support as I started falling apart at the seams. It took me off guard when the age difference between us, five years, four months, and two days, (laughs) that had us, or at least me, assuming we'd be just friends, and had him trying to hook me up with one of his friends near my age, no longer mattered, and I discovered I loved the guy. The feeling was mutual and just in time. On the day the school fell apart, a couple of weeks before I quit my church plant job, a bunch of us drove the 12 hours one way to say goodbye to the exiting missionary school students. My parents, who had moved back to Canada by this point, would also meet us there for the goodbyes, and my guy would talk to my father about his interest in me, getting permission to pursue a relationship with me, a step that in my mind couldn't be left out of this relationship process. A couple few weeks later, my boyfriend would be my support and muscles as he packed up my belongings into a U-Haul truck as I mostly watched while he did most of the work. We moved my belongings to a storage unit in the state he was moving to, and then he drove me to Canada to move back in with my parents about six years after leaving home for college. Back in Canada, I'd be officially diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Being in a romantic, romantic relationship was incredibly stressful. Between my attachment trauma and the dogmatic rules and expectations of the church, which were completely inconsistent depending on which local church you were in, I was a mess. I would say and do things like make fun of my boyfriend's last name in a blundering attempt to not be seen as, quote, in love. I spent so much time afraid of what people would think and feeling wrong for loving someone. On one hand, marriage was celebrated as God's design, but on the other, it was almost treated like a weakness. Love, affection, and relationships weren't common conversations growing up, I feel like. So I started the process with an inherent awkwardness and fear on top of the strict relationship rules in the church. Then there was, you know, the fear of men instilled in me by modesty and purity culture. We definitely couldn't date, but there was this thing called courtship where you're supposed to get to know each other, but not too much. And breaking a courtship was really serious. There were high expectations for the courtship to result in engagement and marriage, so much so that a broken courtship had this, oh, she's tainted vibe. Rules for courtship varied from church location to church location, but some of them included never traveling alone, always having a chaperone, 
since being seen alone or being alone is the appearance of evil. Definitely no sex before marriage. We definitely couldn't court someone outside of the SDRM because then we would be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. I also brought with me the influence of having read Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and two other of his books, Elizabeth Elliot's books, The Dogger Family's Example, and more. I intended on waiting till marriage for our first kiss, but compromised with our first kiss being after our engagement. I was so afraid even to be seen talking to a guy that it made things so much worse. I remember a time we were attending a church camp meeting. My boyfriend and I wanted to have a conversation, but the likelihood for being spoken to and judged for even having a conversation was so high that I suggested we go outside to talk in the dark so no one could see us talking. That was genius. That didn't look suspicious at all. And we were caught walking down the driveway of the camp, caught by headlights coming into the camp. Apparently they told on us for walking alone along the driveway and a couple brothers, I'm thinking one of them may have been the president of the worldwide SDRM general conference. Don't remember for sure. Came out to reprimand us. A couple years later, I reconnected with a friend who shared that the version she had heard was that we were caught getting it on in the woods. <laughs> nope. Just taking a walk alone along the driveway of the camp. Completely unforgivable behavior. And in case you didn't know, you should know this. Holding hands during courtship can be considered equal to having sex before marriage because if you shake hands with someone with AIDS and both of you have a cut on your hands, you could get the disease. So therefore it's equivalent. Just thought you should know that. During an extended visit back to the United States, my fiance and I were married at a courthouse in Alabama where we'd met up with some new friends who had offered to help us navigate the immigration process since I was Canadian and my husband American, same as their dynamic. We had to be legally married before our church wedding ceremony anyway, since SDRM ministers can't legally marry. But due to our lawyer's advice, we decided to legally marry a couple months earlier than totally necessary so that we could hopefully be far enough into the immigration process to safely travel to Canada for the adorable intimate wedding we were planning in my parents' log home in Canada and be able to get back into the U.S. again. We wouldn't live as a married couple, of course, without the spiritual blessing of the church wedding, but on paper, we were married. Our marriage was kind of just like another day for me. Fun fact, the reason we were waiting until October to have a church wedding, and in my mind, officially marry, was because then my fiancé would be 20. Based on a quote in the writings of Ellen White that Quote, a youth not out of his teens is a poor judge of the fitness of a person as young as himself to be his companion for life. End quote. We simply planned our marriage for about two weeks after his 20th birthday, so he'd no longer be in his teens. What can I say? Salvation is in the details, and you gotta avoid criticism where you can. 
So after our courthouse wedding, our friends did a photo shoot for us. Later, the posting of some of these pictures on Facebook as our engagement photo shoot, since we weren't announcing our legal marriage and hadn't had an engagement photo shoot yet, would get us in trouble with the church. We were kissing in some of the pictures. <sighs> oh, it makes me laugh. Around this time, my best friend would also withdraw from being my maid of honor. If the church had issues with my relationship, she would not be able to stand with me during my wedding. It's not my story to tell in detail, but on several occasions, my husband was entrapped by members of the church board at his place of work and eventually called to meet with the entire church membership in meeting. I didn't attend inside the meeting because my anxiety was too high, but I hung around outside and made myself available for when I'd be needed. My husband asked for evidence that our relationship behavior was wrong. He was told that if he couldn't see it, it was because he didn't and would never have the Holy Spirit. When they discovered we were already married legally without the blessing of the church, which we technically had from the pastor who was going to marry us, but that's another sordid detail, and he didn't bow down to their demands without biblical proof for their demands, they gave us an ultimatum. We could either stand up in front of the church during a service one week and apologize for a terrible example, or we would be denied a church wedding. Thankfully, we had enough sense to not agree to public humiliation for something that we didn't believe was wrong, our behavior was wrong. And just like that, a month after our courthouse wedding, we found ourselves married. No wedding, no honeymoon. We were unprepared, emotionally, mentally, and financially unprepared. It would be a few days before I could bring myself for us to consummate the marriage. I was so shut down, so shut down. Our entire lives had revolved around the church. The church was our family, especially since most of our family were, according to the church, unbelievers. Our definition of anyone outside our specific denomination, even if they were Christians, they were unbelievers if they weren't members of our church. The church was our friends. We weren't supposed to have friends outside the church. It was our livelihood. It was our community. It was our life. We would start over. We would recover, but it would take years. We're still recovering. What blows my mind now is that I didn't even think of leaving the church when I was given that ultimatum. Again, I would internalize the shame and take responsibility for my, for my treatment. I'd cry again and again as the grief of my wedding being stolen from me would hit me. But I wouldn't even once think, maybe now is a good time to leave the church and make our own way. No, you don't get to leave the church and be saved. My eternal salvation depended on me staying in this group. The idea of leaving wouldn't even cross my mind. Part of the immigration process for me included a required visit to an approved doctor to check the does not have AIDS or HIV box. I don't remember exactly what I asked her, but the doctor stopped in her tracks and took time to listen and talk to me. I was obviously not okay. She told me that the way I was being treated in the church was wrong. She told me that the stress of whatever it was I was going through was killing me 
and then I needed to do something about it. That was October, if I remember correctly. In December, I would finally draft a letter to the church in Canada asking them to remove my name from church membership. I, I said I needed time and space to heal. I didn't plan on leaving, but the doctor had told me I needed space from this thing that was debilitating me, and I finally took that space. Unfortunately, the vagueness of my letter would only add fuel to the fire and questions about the propriety of my actions in relation to relationship to my now husband. Too much was left to their imaginations, but I didn't have the energy to fight it. Outside the church, we started to make some new friends and acquaintances, many of them people my husband already knew from the years he had grown up in that state. One of these friends I made told me, I have a book I think you'll like. When I finally cracked the book and started reading, it was too heavy to read any faster than at a snail's pace. This book inferred that the way we'd grown up had unhealthy tendencies. It talked about how growing up in a perfectionistic environment had strong resemblance to growing up in an alcoholic home. That is, the results were almost identical. The book was Never Good Enough by Carol Cannon, ironically an at-the-time SDA mental health professional. I had to take it in pieces. I thought my family was perfect. To consider otherwise was too heavy. But I think it slowly chipped away at my belief that everything that had happened up until now was my fault, that I just wasn't good enough. A few years later, I reconnected with my best friend and arranged to meet up at a church camp meeting as the middle ground between our homes just so we could hang out and catch up. I was worried. My husband refused to give these people another second of his time and attention, rightly so, so I would go only with my two children. Joshy was just a baby, Miranda a toddler. I was afraid. What if, without his support and negativity about how these people treat people, I would realize that the church was where I really needed to be? What if I realized that he was the reason I wasn't in the church? I was still so passive and taking blame for my treatment by them, reasoning that I just hadn't complied with my authorities well enough. What would happen to my life and marriage if I felt like I had to go back to the church? But walking into camp meeting was like walking into a freezer. Time away had given me the gift of perspective. No wonder one of the church's teachings is to make sure to regularly attend meetings. It's a safeguard against perspective, really. Sitting in meetings here was an entirely different experience than when I had attended and even taught in this building years before. I saw the stretch that had to be made to prove that the SDRM is prophesied in the Bible and spirit of prophecy. I saw the lack of connection and joy in these people's faces and lives. I wanted out of there. At one point, a brother asked to speak with me and we sat down at the picnic table outside the main meeting hall. With tears streaming down his face, he would ask me to come back and work for the church. They needed me. I said no. I wish I could remember my exact words, but I ever so slightly remember being proud of myself. 
I, Kyla Thorne, had said no, I was starting to take my power back. I had left the church in 2009, but only on paper. I still believed in it. You wouldn't have caught me dead in a pair of pants or eating a piece of meat. I still believed all the doctrines. I just couldn't participate in church without having a panic attack. And it scared me. On one hand, I believed Jesus was coming soon and I must be ready. On the other hand, I couldn't do the getting ready things. I couldn't go to the right church. I got to the point where I couldn't open my Bible. I definitely couldn't read the Spirit of Prophecy, the writings of Ellen White. I felt trapped and it felt incredibly unfair. On one occasion, I sat in someone's home with three other people discussing a certain quote from the writings of Ellen G. White. All of a sudden, I started shaking lost control of myself and started saying, stop, just stop it. It wouldn't be until years later that I learned that religious trauma was a thing, but I was demonstrating post-traumatic stress symptoms. All I knew is that I felt debilitated and I felt hurt by some things that had happened in the church. I guess I wasn't strong enough. It was my fault. I shouldn't feel so hurt by these things. I don't remember how, but at some point I learned that religious trauma was a thing and that, quote, it can be compared to a combination of PTSD and complex PTSD, end quote. That explains it, I thought. Eventually I'd confide again in someone about my consternation around not feeling like I love God or feel forgiven, not feeling like I have a relationship with God despite doing everything perfect, wondering why I feel so messed up despite having loving parents. This time though, instead of writing a letter to someone I'd never met like I did when I was a child, I messaged an SDA acquaintance who was studying to be a therapist. She said that perfection isn't about behavior, it's about love. She said that God is love and that nothing I could do or not do could make him love me more or less. I was drawn to that idea, but it seemed so foreign and elusive when she said that. She suggested that it was normal to not feel love for someone impossible to please, someone I saw as upset with me. She suggested I give myself time, that I stop demanding that I love him. She said God is not demanding that I love him. I cried. A couple years later, I'd reach out to a therapist she recommended. And in the fall of 2016, I felt ready to stop hiding my struggle and wore a pair of pants out in public. Hubby would take me shopping for my first jeans at Tractor Supply Company here in my small town. Besides the fact that I felt like Everyone was staring at my butt thanks to modesty culture. It felt freeing to be real, to finally stop hiding my uncertainty. A couple years before I started wearing pants, who knew wearing pants could be such a landmark, I started some supplements that unexpectedly lifted my chronic depression. 
due to how much they changed my life and the financial struggle, struggle we were experiencing at that time, I also made a business out of selling these supplements. But due to my trauma, fear of being seen, and now lack of tolerance for criticism, I felt like I kept hitting brick walls. When you feel stuck, do personal growth and development, as successful people would say. So I did. Becoming a certified integrative health coach was one of the things I did to grow and develop myself. Later on down the road, one of the teachers from that course would offer a course that helped to connect some dots for me. He taught that our past trauma can have an effect on our current life. I didn't really know what trauma had exactly, but I got into it and eventually became a life coach myself with an emphasis on how trauma can affect our life and make us feel stuck. It helped. All the personal development work helped. But despite my progress, it felt like a bit of a roller coaster that would always come back to me feeling stuck again, despite the thousands of dollars I would spend on growing myself. What worked for other people didn't seem to be working for me. What's wrong with me? Why am I so different? I'd think. Something must be wrong with me. This stuckness added to the mountain of toxic shame I was already carrying. And then, one of my life coach clients mentioned her interest in a therapist she found that specializes in religious trauma. Whoa, I wanted in on that. I asked for his information. And in our initial meeting, he clarified that he isn't a talk therapist. He's what's called a somatic therapist and specializes in how trauma is trapped in and affects the body. I was up for it. I was up for almost anything at this point. As I sat there in our first consultation, telling him a bit about myself and my past, he asked me to put my hands together and I couldn't feel them touching each other. It scared me. My body was numb and braced from years of literally and figuratively holding my breath and feeling afraid on some level as a way of life. Through the process of healing my nervous system in my work with my somatic therapist, I began feeling safe. I began feeling patient with my kids. The colors outside became more vivid. The toys strewn across the house no longer made me feel like I was going to lose it. I could actually feel my body and experience pleasure that I couldn't up until that time. And with the fear that controlled me beginning to diminish, I finally felt safe in not knowing. I no longer felt trapped between the belief that Jesus is coming and my inability to get ready. Not that I could handle religious things any better, but I felt like it was okay that I didn't know. I began to experience feelings of peace, serenity, and happiness. Experiencing safety on a deep down physiological level changed my life and I knew that this was what I wanted to give my clients. I decided that whatever it was, I wanted to get certified in this so I could offer this same difference to others. Because finally, I was no longer riding the personal growth roller coaster that always ended with me still feeling stuck to some degree. So I did. First, I became certified as a trauma recovery coach. My completion of that program 
feeling like a middle finger in the face of those who had shut me up and shut me down. I became certified as a resilience toolkit facilitator, earning the right to teach the body-based tools that had brought safety to my nervous system. And then I became certified as a safe and sound protocol provider, an auditory intervention for children and adults that brings safety to the nervous system also. With my life no longer controlled by fear, the beliefs of my upbringing slowly lost some of their power over me. With my body no longer in survival mode, my prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of my brain, came more online and I started asking questions I hadn't thought to ask when I was in fear mode. Some things about the belief system I was raised in no longer made sense to me. I lost the sense of urgency to know all the answers that I'd felt. Becoming a, quote, gentle parent after years of ascribing, I'm ashamed to admit, to the train up a child movement, I could no longer wrap my head around the healthiness of a belief system based on the belief that human beings are inherently wicked. People always said parenting would change my view of God. I doubt they imagined it would in this way. If God is real, I don't believe he at all resembles the one I was raised to worship. I don't have all the answers, but I'm not so sure anymore that that's such a bad thing. I believe I'm safe in my not knowing. I live with a peace and serenity and joy quite surprising and different from the peace that was more like the certainty of believing the right doctrines in all my years in religion. One of the things I love about life on this side of my religion is the growing sense of belonging to this beautiful human family on planet Earth. I love getting to live alongside people who are different from me without the responsibility of changing them. I love watching my kids laugh and jump and dance and feel without being wrong for it. I love witnessing the inherent goodness in my children. I love experiencing life without the guilt of wasting a thought or moment on enjoyment rather than on God. I love being present for this life without wishing it away. Thank you for listening to Reeling from Religion. If you have thoughts, feelings, or questions you'd like to share, I invite you to join me on Instagram at reeling.from.religion to comment under this episode's post. Thank you for sharing this space with me.